If it's Wednesday, I must be selling something, or Monday, or Tuesday, or Thursday. Tonight I'm selling... No, I, I sell t-shirts on days when I don't sell this. This is the Proceedings of the Fine Printing Conference held at Columbia University. Those of you who read my bulletin boards or who otherwise uh, follow the doings of the various interrelated programs, generally known as the rare book programs at Columbia, know about this, I think. In 1982, uh, Columbia hosted an invitational conference of many of the most active private press printers in the United States who met here in this room, as a matter of fact, uh, for three days in May talking about various matters having to do with paper, print, type, and the mechanics of producing very fine private press books in this country. It did not talk very much about their distribution. The person who helped me organize the local arrangements for that conference was the infinite Martin Antonetti, and if you think that gave me an idea, you were perfectly correct. The proceedings were taped, and over the course of the following six months, edited and produced in, a, in an inexpensive format, a copy of which I have in front of me, the Proceedings of the Fine Printing Conference. This is a hurt copy, which I'll leave up here and bring down into the lounge later so you can thumb through it if you want to. If you'd like to buy a copy, which you may do at the token price of $10, uh, then you can stop into the SLS office at any point, or I suppose if instant gratification overwhelms you, desire for, then we could produce a copy tonight. The only thing I do suggest is that if you're going to buy a copy, buy one now as a result of the TLS review and other, uh, if I may say so, favorable reviews, not all of them solicited by the editor, who is myself. Uh, the thing is selling very rapidly indeed, and we will probably be out of copies well before the end of this year. And I, I don't think we're going to reprint. I think it's like Mary in Pride and Prejudice, it's amused us all long enough. Delighted us all long enough? Yes. There are also prospectuses uh, with the usual self-congratulatory pap on the back. Advertising this publication, which you may also have afterwards, those are free. This is the third and final lecture of the fourth week of Rare Books School, 1984. There will be three lectures next week and three lectures the week after that. And I hope to see many of you at both sets, which promise to be very interesting, as always. I hope you'll agree, indeed. Our speaker this evening is our own Nina Musinski, a graduate of the Rare Book Program of the School of Library Service, now working in Paris at the Bibliothèque Nationale and elsewhere, talking about a topic uh, which, may I say, at the very beginning has generated an extraordinary amount of correspondence and interest internationally from people quite well informed who were unaware that there was any stereotyping in France in the 18th century, let alone at the 37th press or anything else in the neighborhood. So after I present Nina Musinski with her t-shirt, she will tell you on the, more about the subject. First of all, I'd like to define, just give you a couple of basic definitions in case some of you are unsure of what stereotyping actually is. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
Stereotype printing refers to printing from metal plates, which are exact reproductions of relief printing surfaces. These surfaces can be either typeface or relief illustration, although the term is usually used in the context of letterpress printing. The word stereotyping is properly applied to the process of fabricating the plates, involving two basic steps. First, a mold is taken from the relief surface. In letterpress printing, this would be a form of movable type or a page in most early stereotyping. Uh, this mold, called a matrix, can consists of any material susceptible to hardening and holding its form when flooded with molten metal. The second step is, of course, casting the plate from the matrix, which can be and was done in a variety of ways. Let me just summarize the principal advantages of stereotyping. For large editions, it reduced the wear on type. It dramatically reduced the cost of composition for works that were frequently reprinted. And above all, and particularly in the case of slow-selling works, it enabled the editor to print only as many copies as were, as were immediately required, thus avoiding large outlays for paper and press work. Furthermore, a work could be printed simultaneously from more than one set of plates, which was, of course, particularly useful for newspaper printing in the 19th century. But these possibilities could only be exploited when stereotyping techniques had been sufficiently perfected and before this could happen, it had to be reinvented, which was accomplished separately by different individuals in different countries during the late 18th century. The subject of this talk is its reinvention or rediscovery in France, five years before the revolution. It's been a long time since anyone has paid any attention to this episode or series of episodes, or has bothered to trace its influence on com later commercially exploited stereotyping methods. In fact, the last and only serious study, the Histoire et Procédé du Politipage et de la Stéréotypie, History and Methods of Polytyping and Stereotyping, by A.G. Camus, was published in 1801 and constitutes the principal source for all later accounts. I mention this because I will naturally be citing Camus throughout this talk, sometimes from the translation offered by Thomas Hodgson in his Essay on the Origin and Progress of Stereotype Printing, published in Newcastle in 1820, which is now available in a Garland reprint edited by John Bidwell with an introduction by Michael Turner, published in 1982. It was through François-Ignace-Joseph Hoffman's own advertising that I first became acquainted with his achievements. One day, in sorting through a very large collection of 18th century prospectuses at the Bibliothèque Nationale, I came upon Hoffman and Sons' prospectuses for the Journal Politique des Sciences et des Arts and for their Imprimerie Politique, or Polytype Press, and was temporarily awakened from the stupor induced by several straight hours of such chores. Some investigation further aroused my curiosity. For Hoffman's press was only allowed to exist for two years before its privilege was retracted, due mysteriously to abuse. Such are the bare facts of the story found in general sources like Eugène Attin's bibliography of the French periodical press. I soon discovered that during these same two years, Hoffman had been engaged in certain unauthorized activities and was in fact one of many to print and diffuse subversive writings of all sorts, as Henri-Jean Martin has put it. It turned out, moreover, that the intrinsic interest of this intriguing Hoffman affair is multiplied tenfold by the fact that the complete archives of his polytype press, part of which were formerly in the possession of the bookseller André Jam in Paris, are now at the Newberry Library. 
Besides the press registers, this collection contains the complete police records and correspondence which clearly reveals that Hoffman benefited from the powerful protection, protection of Louis-Philippe, Duc d'Orléans. I believe that, this, that these are the only surviving archives of a semi-clandestine press, of the Parisian press of this period. Actually, archives of any 18th century Parisian press are extremely rare. Because I haven't yet seen these documents, I will be raising more questions than I answer. However, although most of my comments will be confined to technical matters, I won't refrain from educated guesses concerning the history of Hoffman's illegal activities, based both on the sources available in Paris and on information concerning the archives, which, both, which the Newberry and Monsieur Jam have both kindly shared with me. As you will see in this particular case, there is no such thing as the purely technical. Hoffman's pre-revolutionary experiments in printing methods were intimately connected with his efforts to escape government censure. Although the origins of stereotype printing have yet to be scrupulously investigated, it is certain that Hoffman was far from the first stereotyper. This honor has recently been reattributed to the Reverend Jan Müller of Leiden, of whom the earliest surviving stereotype work was printed in 1708. One of his plates, for years mistakenly considered to have been produced by a rather fastidious soldering process, also still exists in the British Museum. The earliest stereotype printer in France is believed to have been the printer Gabriel Valère, who at an unknown date, probably between 1725 and 1750, used metal plates to print some prayer books. No other French experimenters are known to have ventured into these waters until the 1780s, when Hoffman seems to have started something like a fad. But in spite of these and a few other generally abortive experiments during the 18th century, of which the most famous were conducted by William Jedd of Edinburgh, it is safe to assert that stereotyping didn't take off until the end of the century. The reasons for this are clear if one considers a few of the economic and technical conditions govern governing 18th century printing. Stereotyping just wasn't profitable. Given the limited size of most editions before Stanhope's invention of an iron press and 20 years later, the dissemination of Koenig's steam-powered cylinder presses. A secondary technical factor was the still primitive state of metallurgy. In France, it, wasn't, it was not until the 1770s that long experimenting by the chemist Darcet led to the discovery of some metal alloys which have the property of softening and even of melting and flowing in boiling water, to quote his memoir from the Journal de Médecine, 1773. Hoffman was the first to employ Darcy's alloys for the fabrication of metal plates. Previous inventors, so-called inventors, had used ordinary type metal for their plates. Some of his successors in the 1790s, dissatisfied with the imperfections resulting from clay or plaster molds, experimented with metal molds, an innovation which achieved some success, particularly under the joint auspices of Pierre and Firmin Didot and Louis-Étienne Heron. It was only much later, in 1829, that the flexible papier-mâché mold was invented by Charles Genoux of Lyon, thus at last making stereotyping both efficient and cheap enough to be truly profitable. These molds were called flan in French, which must be the origin of the melodious English flong. I always wondered. <laughs> Other technological developments, principally the introduction of machine-made paper, were of course necessary concomitants to the, to the commercial exploitation of stereotyping. To summarize a complex web of interrelated circumstances, the state of pre-19th century printing simply made stereotyping both too expensive and too clumsy for it to progress, as Gaskell says, beyond the experimental stage. 
Well then, what was it that in France in the 1780s incited so many to experiment in this direction in spite of all these handicaps? For although Hoffman was, was the first experimenter, he was not alone. The relative success of his efforts inspired immediate emulation. Why were he and his contemporaries so willing to devote their energies to the, to the elaboration of a method which advertisements to the contrary notwithstanding could at that time result in no really profitable commercial application? Camus provides a glimpse of the hidden motives of these pre-revolutionary experimenters. At this time, the press in France was placed under severe restraint, and in order to secure the full observance of the prohibitory regulations, there were other regulations which did not permit the acquirement of a press and other printing materials by any person at his pleasure. It hence became a favorite object with the literary characters of that country to discover a method by which authors might be enabled to print their works under their own inspection without subjecting themselves to the operation of these regulations. This is Hodgson's rather free translation. Camus added that the discovery of a means of multiplying the copies of a written work without having to use a printer's atelier was a victory over despotism. In fact, what these literary characters were above all seeking was a method of printing which would dispense with movable type altogether, and thus with the accumulated controls and constraints attached to its use. As you will see, in Hoffman's case, the casting of plates from molds taken from forms of type was fallen back upon was, uh, as an unfortunate but efficient substitute for an impracticable ideal. As far as I've been able to discover, there exists no published account of Hoffman's life. The sole clues to his background are his self-description in a prospectus as bailiff of Benfeld, an Alsatian town south, southwest of Strasbourg, and his authorship of two Latin legal dissertations held by Bibliothèque Nationale. These were printed in Strasbourg in around 1750, long before his move to Paris, and seem to have consisted of the theses required for entry into the magistrature. Hoffman thus, thus belonged to that class of administrative and legal officials commonly referred to as la robe, breeding ground for the majority of those whom we would today label intellectuals. In other words, he and his son had never been printers, and their competence in the craft can be assumed to have been acquired during leisure hours. An example of the fashionable taste for dabbling in the so-called practical arts, and especially in printing, which prevailed throughout the French upper classes at the time. Hoffman's first experiments in 1783 had little to do with what later became known as stereotype printing. Conceived as a means of reproducing writing, drawings, and musical notation, these methods involved no type, required only a rolling press, and indeed borrowed liberally from copperplate printing. I will refer to this process as polytyping. Hoffman himself indiscriminately applied his neologism, polytypage, polytype, to at least three quite distinct methods of printing with plates, only one of which was, was actually stereotyping. It is only for the sake of clarity, by the way, that I, employ this, I will employ this anachronism, stereotyping. The term stereotype was coined several years after Hoffman's adventures by Firmin Didot and Errand, who seem to have first employed it in their prospectus of stereotype editions in 1795. Camus states that in spite of his claim to have created a new art, Hoffman doesn't seem to have invented anything, but only to have succeeded in applying and combining several previously discovered procedures. This was true for both his polytype and stereotype methods. Probably Hoffman's first experiments, which led to what he called his discoveries in 1783, were inspired by an account published that year by the Abbé Rochon of Ben Franklin's attempts to invent a means of printing as fast as one writes, in Franklin's words. Franklin's method, says Rochon, consists in writing upon paper with a glutinous ink. 
He then powders his writing with emery or the dust of cast iron and afterwards places it between two plates, one of which ought to be of soft metal, the other of a hard stone or iron. When these two plates are passed through a rolling press, an indentation of the writing will be made in the plate of soft metal. From this plate, a number of copies may be taken by the operations of copper plate printing with a rolling press. Rochon himself, who found the results of this procedure disagreeable to the view, had tried to improve it, apparently without much success, by writing with a steel point directly onto a varnished plate, which was then etched. Since this produced an inverse image, he was obliged to resort to the rather primitive method of taking counterproofs on other sheets of paper while the ink was still fresh. What Hoffman did was to combine Franklin's idea of using a special ink with Rochon's method of writing directly on the metal plate. The first plate was pressed onto a, uh, onto a molten heated second plate, which was made of, of one of Darcy's newly discovered metal alloys, producing an intaglio image which was printed with a rolling press. Hoffman's innovation resided in the fabrication of the second plate, which was in fact the one operation common to both his first polytype technique and to his later re reinvention of stereotyping. His original plan had been ostensibly been to print a journal called the Journal Politique des Sciences et des Arts by this method. The journal's main attraction was to be the abundance and variety of its illustrations, quite a new idea for a periodical. Hoffman described his plan in a prospectus, the first of several, published in December 1784. All that can be represented by a drawing will be drawn. All that can be rendered intelligible by description will be written by hand and the entirety multiplied by the art of polytype without the concurrence of any known methods. Just before this prospectus was published on December 15, 1784, he and his son had been granted a privilege for their journal. Please note that as the printing was at that point to be done with a rolling press, it was not necessary to obtain a printer's, a printer's license since copper plate printers disposed of somewhat greater li liberty than their letterpress colleagues. This privilege was for the publication, not for the printing press. In French, the same word, privilege, was confusingly used for both a printing license and for the official permission to print a work or series of works. You have to keep this in mind. The prospectus promised that the first issue of the journal would appear as soon as a sufficient number of subscribers will have presented themselves. And more precisely, if the public deigns to respond to our zeal, it is likely that delivery will begin on the 1st of January, 1785. But issue number one did not, in fact, appear until over a year later. And then it was, in fact, printed by stereotype. Whence the delay? It was not as one would expect due to insufficient subscribers. The story that one can, with some difficulty, piece together from various contradictory accounts by Hoffman is that not only did the polytype method prove intrinsically dissatisfactory, the fault seems to have lain with the ink, but the Hoffmans very quickly encountered what they called contradictions among the ranks of the copper plate printers. This obstacle seems to have been sufficient incitement to abandon the polytype process and to either begin or to continue experimenting with casting plates from movable type. Hoffman later wrote that having developed their new stereotype process, he and his son foresaw that they would meet with similar hostility from the letterpress printers and therefore solicited a privilege as ordinary printers. Although this was written in 1792, after the revolution, it was not, as you might expect, the whole story, and was in fact a gross simplification of a far more complex situation. But this situation can only be understood if one is acquainted with the terms of the privilege for the, for the polytype press, 
which the Hoffmans were finally granted on December 5th, 1785, that is a year after the first prospectus, after a year of steady solicitations and maneuverings, which are amply, docu uh, amply documented by the correspondence at the Newbury. Maneuverings because this privilege was of a most exceptional nature. The irritation which the Hoffmans had aroused when they threatened to invade the copper plate printer's territory must have been nothing next to the wrath of the incensed Parisian letterpress printers upon the granting of the privilege. They were outraged, and with very good reason. First of all, there's the inter interesting specification that, I quote, in consideration of the proof which the Hoffmans have given of their knowledge and skills, they are exempted from the formalities for entry into the printer's corporation concerning apprenticeship and compagnonage, journeymanship, as well as the examination. This meant that the Hoffmans were nonchalantly permitted to skip four years of apprenticeship, three to four years as journeymen, the formal examination, and the droit de maîtrise, dues which at that time had climbed to 3,000 francs, a tidy sum. The only exceptions that were normally made to this series of requirements were for printers' sons and sons-in-laws, but they, even they still had to pay 1,500 francs for the dues. For Hoffman's fellow printers, however, even more heinous than this unusual dispensation was simply the grounding of the privilege itself. During the 17th century, the monarchy had gradually reinforced its control over the book trade. The most efficient step in this direction had been to fix a ceiling on the number of master printers, which had been done in England already at the beginning of the 17th century. Colbert was the first to take measures in 1666 when the Parisian Corporation was forbidden to admit any new members without express permission of the prefect of police. The ranks of the printers' corporations in provincial towns began to be similarly reduced, usually, of course, with the aid of the already established printers and in the teeth of the booksellers who foresaw the inevitable rise in prices. Finally, in 1686, a grand édit de la librairie was promulgated. Its cornerstone was Article 43, which decreed that, I quote again, no more printers are to be received into the Parisian Printers Corporation until their number is reduced below 36, after which 36 is to be the maximum. This limitation was periodically reconfirmed during the 18th century. Exceptional dispensations were only very occasionally granted by royal decree, invariably arousing furious indignation among the 36 members. In conjunction with the policy of granting renewable privileges for both new works and many re-editions exclusively to the licensed printers of Paris, the result was to ma maintain an effective monopoly over the printing trade in the hands of an elite of Parisian dynasties, the title of master printer being practically hereditary. <clears throat> Small wonder, then, that the creation of the Hoffman's 37th printing press in the city of Paris, the exact terms of the privilege, raised a storm of protest, says Henri-Jean Martin, and that in the middle of the Act de réception, the act of reception of the Sirs Hoffman into the community of booksellers and printers, one reads this odd little remark, that it would be appropriate to reflect upon the form of this unusual reception. This exceptional circumstance alone would provide sufficient proof that Hoffman enjoyed the favor of a highly influential personality. One would likewise suspect that this support would have extended to outright financial backing, for how else could Hoffman, apparently not a particularly wealthy man, have financed such a costly venture. This was, in fact, the case. This kind of relationship was hardly uncommon at the time. The fact that Hoffman's polytype press, to quote Martin again, had only been enabled to open through the insistent and direct interve intervention of the Duc d'Orléans, 
throws some light on the obscure circumstances surrounding Hoffman's venture into the official world of publishing and printing and permits one to hazard an interpretation of Hoffman's motives. In a casual conversation, Monsieur André Jam suggested to me that his objectives may have been very simple, that not only the, jour the journal, Journal Politique, but all of Hoffman's well-publicized well experiments in printing techniques had amounted to no more than a deliberate front for the pursuit of his clandestine printing activities, and that, in fact, he had only developed his stereotyping process in order to obtain the precious printing license. Henri-Jean Martin has also written that the polytype, a stereotype method, was, in fact, nothing but a front, and Hoffman very quickly devoted himself to the clandestine printing of subversive writings. But it seems to me that this explanation is a somewhat hasty interpretation of a matter that requires further research. Why, if this were the case, have gone to the, the immense bother of laboriously dabbling in print, new print, printing methods at all? Granted that His Majesty, who at that time proclaimed loud and often his interest in promoting progress by protecting the authors of useful discovery, in the words of the privilege, would, he would have lent a more willing ear to solicitations involving technical innovations. Nevertheless, assuming, of course, that one disposed of sufficiently powerful friends, it wouldn't have been impossible to become an ordinary letterpress printer. With Louis Philippe's backing, Hoffman could have obtained his printer's privilege upon some less troublesome pretext. Therefore, the following seems to me a more plausible interpretation. It appears that Hoffman's original hope was to invent a means of freeing the reproduction of the written word from government control and attempt to do so without in any way justifying activities which required rolling presses, materials for ink, paper, and so forth, would have been so foolhardy as to be utterly out of the question. Hence the idea of printing yet another innocuous journal as a front. Meanwhile, brashly presenting the new printing techniques as to a certain extent the journal's raison d'etre. However, not only did Hoffman not surprisingly suffer harassment from the corporation of copper plate printers, but his polytyping just didn't work. It seems likely that he and his son had been experimenting with stereotype all along. It was thus only natural to focus their efforts on what was at that moment the best means to their end, even if this did mean submitting to the yoke of movable type and thus stricter government control. Their end being above all the facility to carry on their experiments, which would be provided by a printing privilege. Although the inoffensive journal politique was certainly a front, the stereotyping experiments weren't. The fact that Hoffman continued his experimenting after the revolution is strong evidence for the probability that printing techniques were his primary concern. It naturally was an expression of his political views that his polytype press printed the kind of moderately critical essays which in those days came under the heading of subversive writings. However, in my opinion, it is likely that these publications constituted to a certain degree the dues he had agreed to pay in exchange for Louis Philippe's backing rather than Hoffman's principal objective or the hidden motivation for his printing experiments. What then was the stereotyping method, which we will assume that Hoffman perfected during the year 1785? Hoffman, whose concern for the protection of the secrecy surrounding his method verged on paranoia, avoided publishing any detailed description of his procedure. However, in 1792, he addressed a memoir to the Minister of the Interior in solicitation of a patent for his latest invention, logotype, since this was simply a variation of stereotyping, using special multi-letter punches, the memoir contained a precise description of his stereotype method. Unfortunately, I don't know whether this valuable manuscript still exists. It isn't in the Newberry's collection. Camus luckily cites it at length. It is thus the source of all the following information. 
William Jedd's experiments were known to Hoffman and his contemporaries through the article printing in the Encyclopédie, as well as the biographical memoirs of William Jedd, of which a review was in fact, in fact published in the Journal Politique. And Camus asserts that it was from Jedd that Hoffman derived the idea of taking molds from forms of type with a clay-like paste and casting from this a metal plate. Although Hoffman was thus not quite sincere in claiming to have invented a new art, he would have been justified in vaunting the novelty of the materials that he employed in his version of what Jed had dubbed block printing. For the plate, made of Darcy's composition of alloys, which can be, so to speak, kneaded like soft wax, and for the mold, his own personal recipe. Here is his description. From a page composed of types in the usual manner, he made an impression in a mass of soft, rich earth mixed with plaster and prepared with a glutinous paste of syrup of gum and potato starch. This impression served as a matrix into which was poured a composition of molten lead, bismuth, and tin. This was the newly discovered alloy, which, when pressed at the moment of cooling, produced plates, which exhibited facsimiles of the original types. Before pouring the alloy into into the clay matrices, he heated them, as well as the trowel used for spreading and pressing the metal into them. This was done in order to prevent a too rapid and uneven cooling of the metal. Camus adds that Hoffman usually made several molds for each plate since he risked losing some. He could only make one plate per mold, which was one of the major disadvantages of plaster mold stereotyping. The resulting plates, which were about two lines thick, that is about a sixth of the thickness of ordinary type, when squared and properly adjusted, were fixed with pins upon a square block of walnut tree wood in order to bring them to normal type height. Hoffman later tried to improve this rather haphazard method of casting the plates. He admitted in the memoir to the difficulty of obtaining perfectly even or level forms when one poured the hot metal onto the mold, or pressed forms, i.e. plates, when one poured the hot metal onto the mold or pressed the mold onto the hot metal with the force of one's hand alone. He had thus adopted the idea of the coup sec, or sharp tap, that is, of applying a sharp pressure at precisely the proper instant, a technique long used in coin dyeing, and which had been successfully applied to his own stereotyping method in 1786 by a man named Joseph Carrez. For this procedure, a fly or screw press was used. I won't assault you with another long technical citation. It's enough to note that this somewhat more sophisticated technique nevertheless still involved much fiddling with the trowel. Before applying the pressure, the molten metal had to be continuously smoothed toward the edges in order to make sure it cooled evenly. The Journal Politique and the Hoffman's major production, the three-volume Recherche historique sur les morts et histoires de l'Empire de Maroc by Louis de Chénier, which was published in 1787, were advertised in the Journal Politique and in prospectuses as having been stereotyped. Indeed, the, the privilege very explicitly forbade them to print using ordinary methods. And in spite of contemporary accusations of cheating, close observation shows this to be true. The appearance of these works among the incunables of stereotyping is less dreadful than one might expect. The beginnings were hardly promising. Upon first glance, the early issues of the Journal Politique appear to have been abominably printed. The journal, by the way, was printed curiously in Caslon, unlike all of Hoffman's other publications, which were set in Fournier or close imitation. Poor inking and clumsy press work surely did contribute to this mediocrity. However, closer inspection reveals certain oddities. Tiny white flecks or cracks, strangely bent lines, and an unevenness in the dis distribution of the ink that is due to flaws in the plates themselves. 
Besides this general lack of uniformity, one can occasionally sport, spot warped individual letters. Finally, the heaviness or even smudging of the beginnings and ends of the lines, which is characteristic of hasty presswork in the hand press period and was called barbouillage in French, is particularly noticeable in the Hoffmann stereotyping. These faults were due to the inherent deficiency of clay and plaster molds, which presented two major handicaps. They were highly susceptible to, def to de deformation upon drying, and excessive heat during drying often caused the mold to crack or even to break. Secondly, as Camus puts it, it is extremely difficult to make the melted metal penetrate into a mold of this kind, the air which fills the letters having no point of escape. This renders the angles obtuse and the letters round. One satisfactory solution to these interrelated problems was the metal matrix. The quality of the journal, fortunately for Hoffman, improved very obviously and rather quickly. For by its seventh or eighth week, the result is far more acceptable. And by its fourth month, the journal, while hardly an example of fine printing, certainly stands up to similar publications of the time which were printed by ordinary methods. After this steady improvement, however, the limitations of Hoffman's method prevented any further amelioration. Although the white flecks, due to cracks in the plates, become more occasional and the inking less uneven, the overall appearance remains dull, since the individual letters lack clarity. And this is not, by the way, due to worn type, since the archives contain a request by Hoffman for the release of a shipment of type, which had come from England, which had been sequestered by the syndical chamber of printers. To sum up, notwithstanding its apparently inevitable defects, the official output of the, of the polytype press must have been very scrupulously produced, since it is all in all quite respectable considering the primitive methods employed. The printing of the journal and of the Recherche Historique undoubtedly required several attempts for each plate, thus much time and expense. But why do I say official output? The implication that Hoffman went to the trouble and expense of actually stereotyping illegal publications may arouse some skepticism. But let me explain. First of all, c close consideration of the nature of these publications reveals the inadequacy of the term illegal. Among the writings which represented Louis-Philippe's faction, which the Hoffmans printed, they printed a series of texts by the so-called physiocrats or economists and numerous pamphlets which belonged to the brochure literature that suddenly began to develop in 1787. Most of the pamphlets that I, I was able to identify as printed by Hoffman's Press, I won't go into the details of how I identified them, concerned the great event of the winter of 1787, the king's decision to call up an assembly of notables for the first time since 1626. And most were published under a semi-fictitious imprint, for example, Londres et se trouve à Paris chez Petit, London and sold in Paris chez Petit, or under the collective or anonymous à Paris chez tous les marchands de nouveautés, which is more or less means sold by all the booksellers in Paris. Whether this particular series of pamphlets on the Assembly of Notables represented the Hoffman's first publication of controversial writings, I don't know. But they were the first ones to get them into serious trouble. On February 15, 1787, three of these works were censured by a royal decree. And Hoffman, along with the booksellers, Royer and Petit, was forbidden to exercise his trade. For the pamphlets, says the decree, were not only printed without permission, but contained reprehensible matters. All copies were to be brought to the police headquarters to be suppressed. What is interesting here is that one of the censured works, entitled Objet proposé à l'Assemblée des Notables par de zélés citoyens, was openly published with the Imprimerie Politique imprint. Furthermore, another one of this series of supposedly clandestine pamphlets, 
the Motivé Résultat des Assemblées Nationales, etc., etc., whose title page, at least in the copy at the Bibliothèque Nationale, bears the aforementioned anonymous imprint Chez tous les marchands de nouveautés, was in fact advertised in the Hoffman's journal. But not only that, it was advertised with the imprint at the Polytype Press, à l'imprimerie Polytype et chez tous les marchands de nouveautés. One can therefore deduce that this group of pamphlets, which were, of course, far from virulent, virulent anti-royalist tracts, were not considered particularly dangerous by Hoffman and his fellow booksellers. But then why, you will ask, have printed any of them under a false address? The answer lies in the peculiarities of the monarchy's relationship to the officially tightly controlled press. The conflict between the regime's desire to maintain strict control over the press and the need to at least minimal, minimally protect French commerce had some entertaining consequences, one of which was the development of a Byzantine system of unofficial permissions to print works which were too reminiscent of controversy to warrant a privilege. So-called tacit permissions were granted to the less unorthodox of these, provided they be printed under a false foreign imprint. But there was a further degree of legal illegality. Here is Malzerbe's often quoted description of what were diversely known as clandestine permissions, secret permissions, or tolerances. Malzerbe was director of the Librairie from 1715 to 1763. It was often felt necessary to tolerate a book without having to admit that it was tolerated. In such cases, the bookseller was secretly assured that he could undertake his edition, that the police would pretend to be unaware of it and would not have it seized. And since one couldn't predict whether it would anger the church and the parliament, he was recommended, recommended to remain prepared to get rid of his edition at any given moment, and was promised that he would be warned in time before his premises could be searched. I do not know, says Malzea, what to call this kind of permission, which has come into common usage. It really is nothing more than an insurance of impunity. No written register was kept of these secret permissions, unlike the tacit permissions, which were recorded, a fact that poses a problem for the historian, as Martin has said. It is thus probable that the Hoffmans had received this kind of verbal assurance of impunity for their series of pamphlets on the Assembly of Notables, an assurance which was later partially retracted, or rather which met with opposition from other quarters. Conflicts of authority were frequent in such cases since the weight of tradition had resulted in a dispersal of control over, uh, control over the book trade between several official bodies, the chancellor and the keeper of the seals who directly represented the king uh, and who appointed the director of the librairie, the parliament, and the church. There were three, basically. In fact, in his work, The Commerce of Prohibited Books in Paris from 1750 to 1789, Jean-Pierre Belin cites an as an example of this kind of conflict an anecdote concerning a work by the Abbé Nicolas, Nicolas Baudot, which had been printed by the Polytype Press, although Belin didn't know this since the imprint was anonymous. To return to the question of how these pamphlets were printed, Whatever was the fate of the three censured pieces, one of them ended up in the Bibliothèque Nationale, where I had leisure to examine it, trying in vain to rid myself of the distinct impression that it was actually stereotyped. Entitled Essai historique et politique sur les Assemblées Nationales du Royaume de France, with the aforementioned partly false imprint à Londres et se trouve à Paris chez Petit, 1787, it is not only abominably printed, but bears all the signs of a rushed and in places botched claim old job. White flecks and cracks galore, deformed letters, heaviness at the margins. It would serve, in fact, as a perfect example of all the monstrosities that cracked and warped clay molds can engender. The probability that Huffman had received a secret permission for this work explains partly why he would have stereotyped it, 
since, as I said, he was forbidden by the terms of the privilege to print with movable type. However, not all of the pamphlets appear to have been stereotyped. It therefore seems to me that this explanation needs rounding out by a bit of insight into Hoffman's character. In my opinion, in stereotyping this and a couple of the other pamphlets, Hoffman was simply playing around with his invention. As I have said, my interpretation of his personality differs somewhat from that of the only other people who have expressed any opinions on the subject, Monsieur Jam and Henri-Jean Martin. Thus, rather than a fervid radical hell-bent on churning out polemical tracts as quickly and cheaply as possible, the man whom I envision conforms admittedly to another cliché, the rather impractical but dedicated inventor, who's more interested in profiting when time permits from the opportunity of having more material to practice on than in saving money and time by getting the work done in the ordinary way, that is, with movable type. The messy appearance of this pamphlet shows that he was indeed pressed for time and did not dare go so far as to take several molds in order to obtain a decent plate. <clears throat> After all, he was spending other people's money. But enough, enough idle speculation. It's time to finish the story of Hoffman. The first interdiction of the polytype press lasted only a few weeks. It was lifted on March 10th, supposedly upon consideration of the accused's representations that by the execution of this decree, they are deprived of the resources necessary to support their families, should His Majesty not deign to show his indulgence toward them. In reality, of course, this pardon resulted from some high-placed string pulling. Nevertheless, the defunct journal politique was never revived, perhaps because as a front it had become superfluous. Of Hoffman's occupations during the following months, I have found no account. But he and his son were certainly not inactive. Several of the clandestine publications that I was able to identify were printed or at least disseminated during this time. Just an aside, in case some of you are interested in my source for this kind of dating, it's the, uh, the Memoirs Secrets pour servir à l'histoire de la République, République des Lettres, Secret Memoirs to Serve for the History of the Republic of Letters in France, by, originally by El Petit de Bachaumont who kept an impressively detailed chronicle of every daily occurrence in the Republic of Letters from 1740 until his death in 1771, during which 30 years the work was never printed but circulated as a manuscript. This, was often, this often happened that time. It was continued in printed form by two other people until the end of 1787. Well, it must have been a hot summer, 1787, for the Huffmans. The explosion occurred on, on September 15th. Says Camus, Apparently under pressure from the Keeper of the Seals and the Printer's Corporation, and perhaps at the instigation of the court, the seals were affixed to the doors of the atelier, which signified the suspension of the press's activities until the passing of a final decision. In early October, the premises of the press were searched, revealing an enterprise which had clearly been interrupted in the midst of bustling activity. And the final blow was delivered on November 1st. The king, so reads the decree, having considered that instead of conforming to the conditions of their privilege, the Sirs Hoffman had nearly always printed with movable type and had taken advantage of the right to secrecy which had been accorded by the privilege by avoiding any inspections in order to print several libels which have recently been published, therefore ordered that they be deprived of their trade, that their press be definitively suppressed, the privilege revoked, and finally that a description and inventory be made both of the tools of said press and of the merchandise found therein, which will be transported to the syndical chamber of Paris to be sold in the usual manner. This precious inventory is in the collection, at the, New the Newbury's collection. According to their cataloging, 
This report includes details of the search procedure room by room and a listing of printed materials found in each locality. Very little is given of the printing materials encountered. It was only a month later, as a sort of afterthought, that the privilege for the journal was also revoked. Hoffman says Camus complained energetically of the injustice done to him, not wholly without grounds for complaint, since the charge of his having almost always printed with movable type was a considerable exaggeration and was obviously thrown in to add weight to his list of misdemeanors. But his protests were in vain. Although he did pursue his experiments with outlandish printing methods. At some point, he returned to his native province, since the 1792 manuscript memoir was dated from Schellestadt. The description in this memoir of his most recent experiments must be quite entertaining. It is unfortunate that Camus did not tra transcribe the sections concerning his experiments with graphic printing processes. Dismissing them in a note is irrelevant to his study, since the only reference that I have found to, these, to any of these later inventions in J. M. H. Amand's Des Arts Graphiques makes, makes me, made me at least want to know more. Hoffman developed his new technique, one of his new techniques, for the reproduction of maps, but it could be used for any kind of design. The procedure was, to a certain extent, the mirror image of his original polytype process. The matrix, the matrix consisted of a copper plate which had been specially coated with another one of Hoffman's ingenious recipes, and then engraved. Thus, the plates cast from this matrix were in relief. Hoffman didn't bother to coin a new name for this procedure. He simply threw it into by the by then very mixed bag labeled polytype, polytypage. He wasn't the only one to be careless in his terminology. The vocabulary of early 19th century graphic reproduction process, processes can be very confusing. As a matter of fact, his term polytype or polytypage was repeatedly adopted during the first half of the 19th century for a be bewildering variety of experiments in graphic printing processes. Most of these involved the search for a means of reproducing illustrations in relief which would rival the traditional intaglio methods in fineness of line and which would have a longer life than wood engravings. And most were, to a greater or lesser degree, descendants of Hoffman's variations on his original polytype process, whether their inventors were aware of their lineage or not, or acknowledged it, which they usually didn't. For example, between 1800 and 1810, engravers named Dugour, Benal, Duorchay, and Duplat each experimented with a different method, invariably, invariably called polytypage, of casting plates in relief. These produced white line images that look exactly like wood engravings. Jean-Louis Duplat's method, for example, involved a combination of engraving and etching on a lithographic stone. A matrix taken from this stone produced an intaglio plate, which was printed with the letterpress. Thus, the lines of the final image were white. Actually, the versatile Hoffman himself seems to have experimented early on with a similar technique. Some proofs dated 1785 of white writing on a black background are now in the Newbury's collection. Camus described them but found no explanation of the method used to print them. However, it probably resembled in some way Duplat's method of casting a plate from a matrix which had been taken from an engraving. If anyone, by the way, is interested in all this wild experimenting in graphic processes, I'm afraid I can recommend no equivalent for France of Elizabeth Harris's masterful study, Experimental Graphic Processes in England, 1800 to 1859, which was published in the Journal of the Printing Historical Society in three parts, 1968 to 1970. The only comparable, comparable French source, source for France, I mean, is over a century old, Amand's Des Arts Graphiques Destinés à Multiplier par l'Impression, published in 1857. 
And since his brief account of Hoffman's and of other early stereotypers' work is loaded with inaccuracies, I'm led to suspect that this one and only source should be used with caution. In other words, a French Harris would be most welcome. Hoffman's last invention in letterpress printing, or the last of which I found mention, related to composition rather than to the actual stereotyping or printing processes, which seems to be why Hoffman deemed it worthy of a separate name. The idea of saving time and expense by employing multi-letter types had been in the air for several years. Hoffman adopted his term logotype, logotype, from Henry Johnson's Introduction to Logography, published in London in 1783. The reasons for his search for a shortcut were simple. He rather surprisingly admitted in his memoir that since he incurred the same expenses of composition and correction as ordinary presses, his stereotyping method was actually more expensive than ordinary printing, an expense that was not always compensated by the ease of conserving the edition. So he decided to do away with movable type altogether. He'd never been terribly fond of it. By simply skipping a few steps, Instead of punching matrices for the individual types, casting the types from the matrices, composing the type, and finally taking the stereotype mold from the pages of assembled type, the idea was to imprint the letters directly into the mold by means of special punches. To save time, frequently occurring syllables and short words were cut in single punches, producing a total of 370, which is why he named it logotype. Unfortunately, the procedure was primitive to say the least. Trembling hands were out of the question. Each type was sunk into the clay, care being taken to hold it against a movable copper rule in such a manner that the impression was always upright and of an equal depth. Although Hoffman did receive a 15-year patent for this invention, he almost immediately sold it to a Mr. Zaltzman, perhaps because he found his method, after all, a bit too laborious. Hodgson comments tactfully that it does not appear that any works were ever executed by this process. Indeed, it's most probable that there never were any, for it must be evident to anyone at all acquainted with printing that it never could be successful. T.C. Hansard, in his typographia, was less charitable. He felt compelled to conclude his description of Hoffman's logotype with an apology to his professional readers for wasting time and paper in relating such ridiculous schemes. <laughs> I, on the contrary, find such ridiculous schemes rather interesting and hope that a few of you at least have shared my sentiments. Let me conclude by pointing out the obvious, that the full history of Hoffman's polytype press remains to be written. Study of the archives may constitute a not insignificant contribution to the history of printing as agent of political change. I hope, however, that by focusing on the technical aspect of Hoffman's experiments and employing a perspective which often seems a bit lacking in the French conception of the history of the book, I have managed to show that Hoffman's experiments in stereotyping originally inspired by the hope of escaping repressive government control, have been unduly neglected by historians of printing techniques. Thank you.